What a comfort, Lord, this morning to be reminded that you are our rock and our foundation, that because of what you have done, we have a refuge, not only from the, the trials and the difficulties that come at us from the outside, we have a refuge from our own sin, our own failure. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, the grace that forgives, the grace that protects and sustains and comforts. You will bring us home to heaven. All who trust in you will be delivered through the storm, the storm of our own failures and the storm of difficulty that we face in the world around us. Thank you, Lord, for this comfort. Thank you for your promise. Thank you that you are so, so faithful. We pray that now as we open your word, that we would see in even greater detail your love and your grace and your faithfulness, that we might know you, that we might walk with you, that we might worship you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn this morning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. If you're visiting with us this morning, I want to welcome you. I'm glad you're here. We've been um, working through the book of Genesis over the last eight weeks or so. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we've got a couple on the back. We'd love to give you one. Um, you can even take that home with you. Uh, also, if you're visiting, we've got a, a small little black uh, hardcover book on the back by Greg Gilbert called What is the Gospel? We'd love to send that home with you as well. Just a way of us saying thank you and also a way of us telling you, here's the one thing we want you to know, the one thing we want you to understand, uh, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But Genesis chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning in our Bibles. Uh, as we saw last week, uh, it's kind of fitting with all the rain we have going on outside, but last week we looked at the flood, um, and we considered how this is not just a, a story for coloring books and for children's church. This is a serious thing. It's a real thing. It's a literal thing, and it's something that reveals to us the judgment of God against sin. Man's sin brings divine judgment. That's the lesson of the flood, but in the midst of all this judgment and all of this sin, we also see another beautiful truth, that salvation is made possible through the grace of God, that God rescues a man named Noah. He sets his favor on him, and he, he rescues Noah and Noah's family. Noah believes in God's word. He obeys God's word. He builds this ark, and he does everything God tells him, and he is saved. He's rescued because of the grace of God. We saw that there was a reason for this flood. There was comprehensive corruption on the earth. Sin, which entered the world through Adam and Eve, their sin had spread to their children. We see it sadly played out as Cain kills his brother Abel, and we see that that sin is passed down through their descendants until all of society is only always doing evil, that every intention of their heart is bent towards sin and wickedness. So God sends this flood, it's judgment, but we also saw last week that as well as the flood communicating the judgment of God, it's also, in a sense, an act of decreation. As God sends this deluge of water, everything is undone. We even have this imagery of, of the waters above and the waters below being brought together, the exact reverse of what happened in creation as God separated the waters above from the waters below. We see that God is bringing everything back to square one, and he's going to continue his original purpose for, through, for creation through this one man, Noah, and his family. As the waters subsided and the earth becomes livable again, the question arises, what now is going to happen? What, what now will become of this rescued remnant and this newly washed creation? It takes us to the end of chapter 8. 
We read some of these verses last week. As Noah and his family and the animals are commanded by God to exit the ark, we see that in verses 13 through 19. God tells them in verse 16 specifically, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And as always in this chapter, Noah went out, he obeys, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. In the beginning, God had created man and created the animals. Now he invites these, this, these humans and these animals who have been saved to step out of the ark into this new world. And as we mentioned last week, Noah's first response to being rescued. The first thing he does, it's not, okay, we got to set up shelter for tonight. You know, got to build a tent or a lean-to or some sort of shelter. The first thing he does is not look for food or, or go investigate to see what, what's left of the world. The first thing he does is worship. The first thing he does is turn his heart, his eyes, his attention to heaven, to the God who had saved him. I, I think Noah and his family were very, very, very aware in that moment of the power of God. And wouldn't you be? I mean, you just came off this ark and you're looking at what's left of this world that you used to live in. God did this. And you, and you were very, very, very aware also that not only did God do all this, but the only reason I'm still breathing is because of God's grace towards me. I think they were very aware of God's power and God's grace. And so before they do anything else, they sacrifice. They sacrifice. We see in verse 20, that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The burnt offerings here are not something that's been prescribed by the law, although we'll see later as Israel kind of comes together as a nation and God gives them the law that these burnt offerings are are whole offerings. The whole animal is put on there and the entire thing is burnt. And it's an expression of full dedication to God. All of this animal to God represents, God, here's all of me. I'm yours. Noah and his family realized that, God, we belong to you. You made us. You saved us. Here we are. We're before you. God had instructed them to take two of every species of animal, but God had anticipated and planned for this sacrifice to happen. If we go back to God's instructions to Noah, he told them not just to take a pair of every animal, but to take seven pairs of the clean animals. This sacrifice was anticipated and planned for. Now Noah takes these clean animals and he offers them to God. And once again, this is a demonstration of Noah's faith. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Noah's faith was unique in his generation. This faith had been demonstrated as he believed the word of God. This faith had been demonstrated as he obeyed the word of God. And now this faith is expressed as he worships God. He says, God, I am yours. Here I am. I give you thanks and I offer you my life. And this is kind of sets the stage for what's going to happen next. I'd like to look at uh, what God does um, in the rest of chapter 8 and on into chapter 9. What we see is that though God has judged the earth, once again, Moses, as he writes this book, is making sure we know who God really is. And he wants us to see that God is a God of grace. He is full of grace. We see the grace of God in display on display in, in verse 20 of chapter 8, really all the way through, uh, halfway through chapter 9, we see what God does. Verse 21, 
when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice, the burnt offering, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We see the grace of God displayed, first of all, in the sense that God graciously receives Noah's worship. He receives Noah's worship. That shows grace. Not only does he receive worship, but he resolves to never again flood the earth. Although God is holy, although God is is just and he judges sin, we see here that God is not some impossible-to-please tyrant. He is genuinely pleased by the humble faith and obedience of Noah. I think sometimes we, in, in emphasizing the fact that we are sinful, which is true and necessary, and in emphasizing the fact that apart from God's grace, we have no hope, sometimes I think we undersell the fact that God is genuinely pleased by our faith and our worship, not because we're sinless, but because he is gracious. God receives his worship. He is the Lord, the Lord Yahweh. You see that? In verse 21, it says, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart. You see in verse 20 that Noah builds this altar to the Lord. We've mentioned this before, but in in the Hebrew language, when we see the word God, capital G-O-D, that's translating the Hebrew word for Elohim, which is sort of a title. That's what God is, God. But Lord, when we see that all capitalized, that is the personal name of God, who he is. He is the Lord, Yahweh the God who has relationship with his people, the God who loves his people, the God who relates to them, and that is who Noah is worshiping, and that's who receives this worship. He is the Lord, not some impersonal deity, but the one who knows and loves his people and is pleased by their faith and their worship and their obedience. And as as the Lord receives this worship, he resolves never to flood the earth again, never again to curse the ground. When Adam sinned, He cursed the ground. When Cain sinned, we see that God cursed the ground because of Cain. And when this whole generation had plunged into sin and wickedness, God cursed the whole earth in the sense that he sent this flood to judge every living thing, to wipe it all out. But God says, never again will I curse the ground because of man's sin. Never again will I kill every living thing via a flood. Never again will I interrupt the natural cycle of nature in such a way. Summer, winter, cold and heat, rain, harvest, it's going to continue. It will not cease. Why would God say this? Why would God determine never to flood the earth again? Well, we see a reason here. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You see, God knows us. And even though the entire human race, except Noah and his family, have been wiped out, Noah and his family they still carry that contagion of sin. Their sin nature is alive and kicking, and it will be expressed in their lives, as we'll see shortly, and it will be passed on to their descendants as well. And God knows that if he does not determine to do something else to counteract the sin of man, this cycle will repeat itself. Sin, judgment, death. Sin, judgment, death. So God resolves never again to interrupt the natural cycle in this way. 
God is determined to make another way to deal with the corruption of his creation. And what that is, we haven't yet been told. But we see here that God is determining that rather than continue this cycle of, of global judgment, he's going to do something different to deal with the sin of mankind. God's outworking of redemption throughout history will be his ultimate plan to bring glory to himself and joy to his people. He's not only going to send judgment, he's going to send salvation. God's going to make another way to deal with our disease of sin. And all of this shows us that God is a God of grace. He is full of grace. We not only see grace in the sense that he receives worship and he resolves never to destroy them again, but we see his blessing in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9. Look at the grace of God here. God blessed Noah. He blessed him. He blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from every man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. We see God's blessing here in this first part of chapter 9, that God blesses Noah. Now, this blessing indicates, once again, God's divine favor. He's saying, Noah, I am pleased with you. I like you. I love you. I'm for you. I'm pleased and I'm blessing you. I'm setting my favor on you. And this was really important. I mean, imagine, put yourself in, in Noah's shoes or in his wife's shoes or in his kids' or their wives' shoes. Imagine their trembling fear as they step out of the ark because they know they know that they carry the same sin that led to all of this destruction. They know that this is how God responds to evil and wickedness. And now imagine their sense of vulnerability. Everything that they know was gone. Everyone that they knew, the buildings, the towns, the landscape has changed. Everything is brand new. Imagine how small they felt. Imagine how alone they felt. Imagine how vulnerable and perhaps afraid, afraid of what their own sin might bring from this God. And then God blesses them. He blesses them. They are recipients of his divine favor. What a comfort that must have been for this family as they step off of the ark into this new world. This blessing not only communicates God's divine favor, but this blessing also indicates divine empowerment to do what God is calling them to do. God's going to call them to do some things, and he's, he's blessing them, in a sense, blowing wind in their sails and empowering them to do what it is that he's going to instruct them to do. Noah, as we see here, is recommissioned with the same task that was originally given to Adam. As we read that, did, did some of those statements ring a bell? Did it sound familiar? Remember back in, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 as God creates man and woman, and then he gives them this commission? to keep and tend the garden, to multiply and fill the earth, and to subdue it, to exercise dominion over creation, to eat of all the plants, but to not eat of certain things. We see here, it's almost a replay of what happened originally in the garden. Noah is recommissioned with the same 
the original creation mandate that had been given to the first man. The land is to be cultivated and populated. It's a new beginning, a new beginning. God's going back to square one and once again advancing his original purpose for the world now through Noah and his family. You see, Noah and his family are more than mere survivors. They are the bearers of God's promise. They are the instruments by which God intends to accomplish his purposes. In God's grace, get this, God hasn't given up on mankind. The flood doesn't mean God's giving up and throwing in the towel and quitting. No, God is starting over. He's hitting the reset button, but his original purpose is still at play. God hasn't given up. He has not quit on us. This mandate is the same that was given to Adam and Eve. Just as Adam and Eve were given dominion over the animal kingdom, God tells Noah and his family that the animals would be filled with fear. The animals would fear them. And this is part of man's superiority and dominion over the animal kingdom. Kind of echoes that original dominion. And perhaps this is to also slow the tide of corruption and violence. We see that all the earth was filled with wickedness. We see here that God doesn't want animals to kill man, but in a broken world this happens. Perhaps the fear of man was to even help preserve their lives. There's only a couple people, and there's predators. There's big animals in the world. Perhaps this is to help ensure the survival of the human race. but, But in any sense, it shows man's hierarchy over the animals. Just like God told Adam and Eve, they were to exercise dominion over the animals. They named the animals, showing that they were over them. God is repeating and restating that original creation mandate. Just as God told Adam and Eve, here's all the plants of the garden, and you can eat of any of the plants. God tells this family, I've given you all the plants for food, but he expands it that they are also given permission to eat meat, to use the animals for food. But there's also a prohibition, just like with Adam and Eve. Remember, God said, eat of any tree in the garden, but what did God add? Except one tree, right? Which tree was it? Do you remember? Any of the kids remember in here? Which tree were they not supposed to eat of? Do you remember? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So there is one no and a bunch of yeses. Well, God gives Noah and his family a no. They can eat of of the animals, but they are not allowed to consume the blood of those animals. There's a prohibition of eating in Genesis 2, a prohibition of eating the blood here in chapter 9. This shows that although man is superior to animal, the life, even of animals, ultimately belongs to God. And it is precious to him. It is valuable to him. It is sacred. And they are not to consume that blood. That blood, as we'll see later, will often be offered on the altar to God because the life and the blood belongs to him. And because it is sacred, it is a fitting sacrifice for sinners. The life of animals and their blood, it means something. But not only is there respect here shown for animal life, even more so for human life. It says in verse 5, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made him in his own image. This instruction is sadly necessary in a world that was marked by violence, where Cain kills his brother where Lamech kills a young man, where the world is filled with violence and corruption, there's a need for this rule. In my house, we have some rules that are kind of unique. 
You might think, why would you have that rule? Well, there's a reason, because somebody did it one time. That's kind of like what we find here. Because human life had been disregarded, God gives them this instruction. The blood of man is even more sacred than the blood of animals because mankind bears the image of God. Remember what we found is God created man in chapter 1, chapter 2, that God made him in the image of God. And we see that same sacred image reflected here again in chapter 9. To disregard the life of man is to disregard his maker, whose image he bears. So God gives them this prohibition. Not only is this practically necessary, I mean, God didn't want people killing each other, but it also tells us something about God. Again here, it shows us God's grace. It shows that although God has wiped out the human race, it's not because God has no regard for life. You might be tempted to think that. As you step off the ark into this world, you might think, man, life must mean nothing to this God. No, no, no. On the contrary, God is telling them, listen, even the lives of animals is sacred to me. And the lives of people that I've made in my image is precious and sacred. This God cares greatly for life. It has value in his eyes. It tells us something about our God. It shows us his grace. Then once again, God reiterates their commission. See in verse 7, you, repeating once again, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply on it. Rather than to be life destroyers, Noah and his family are to be life multipliers. This is God's will. And he blesses them and calls them to this joyous task. See, God's original intent of having a people who walk in relationship with him, who reflect his glory to the world, that's what God's still after. It's what he was after in the garden. It's what he's after here, after the flood. See God's grace in all of this. He's not given up. Life is precious to him. He's blessing these people and empowering them to go and do what it is that he originally wanted man to do. But we see that this grace, it's not just hinted at, it's not even just talked about. This grace is guaranteed in the covenant. Look with me in verses 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. And your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Back in chapter 6, verse 18, we encountered this word, covenant. It's the first time this word has appeared in Scripture. As God gave instructions to Noah. He tells him to build the ark. 
It says, Behold, I will bring a flood, in verse 17, of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but, God says, I will establish my covenant with you. God had promised that he was going to establish this covenant. And, and in his heart, he resolves to do it, we, we saw. As he receives Noah's worship, he thinks in his own mind, God says, I'm never going to destroy the earth again with a flood. But Noah didn't know that yet. Noah didn't know what was included in this covenant. Noah didn't know yet what God's heart was. So imagine again their fear. God, is this going to happen again? What if we screw up like everybody else did? God says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. Now, this word covenant is a very, very important word. It appears over 82 times as we read just the next few books of the Bible in the Pentateuch. This word becomes one of the primary themes that ties together not just Genesis, not even just the Pentateuch, not even just the Old Testament. This is one of the themes, one of the threads that holds together the entire Bible. God's covenant. What is a covenant? Paul Williamson defines a covenant as a solemn commitment, guaranteeing promises or obligations that are undertaken by one or both covenanting parties. So there's some big words there. But it's a solemn agreement. It's more than God just saying he's going to do something. It's more than even just a promise. It is a, it is a solemn commitment that guarantees promises, a solemn commitment that guarantees that certain parties will do and must do certain things. There's skin in the game, this solemn commitment, guarantee to keep promises and fulfill obligations. This is what God is doing as he formalizes this. There's been a sacrifice. There is a sign and a symbol to remind us and God forever of this promise. And God tells them, here are the stipulations of this covenant. I am never going to do this again. And he gives them a sign, the rainbow hung in the cloud. I, I wear every day a sign of a covenant. This little ring, which wasn't very expensive, is nevertheless very, very precious to me because it represents a covenant, a covenant between me and my wife, a covenant that has certain promises and obligations all wrapped up into it. And every time I see this ring, it reminds me of that. God hangs up his rainbow in the sky. Some people have talked about the imagery of it almost being like a warrior's bow that's been hung up on the wall. There's no more arrows loaded. It's not pointing at us anymore. God says, I'm never going to destroy the earth again. And here's the sign of that covenant. This theme of covenant is crucial to understanding how the Bible fits together and how history unfolds because this is not the only covenant that we find in Scripture. We'll find a series of unfolding covenants, and it is through these covenants that God is going to work out his plan of salvation. So if you don't understand this idea of covenant and you don't see this theme throughout Scripture, you're going to be kind of confused as you read your Bible, and you're not going to understand what God is like and how God works in history. He works in history, to bring salvation through these covenants, through these covenants. This is how he relates to his people. He is a covenantal God. He's a God who makes covenants and a God who keeps covenants. This becomes a dominant theme. God makes this covenant with Noah, but as we see in chapter 12, he's going to make a covenant with Abraham as well, the Abrahamic covenant, which has promises and has certain symbols that are the signs of that covenant. He's going to make a covenant with the nation Israel, as Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, 
The law is given. And this is one of those covenants with Israel that's both directions. There's obligations on God's part, and there's obligations on the part of the nation Israel. Later, we'll find a covenant with David where God promises him that one of his descendants will sit on the throne forever. As we read throughout the prophets, we discover this promise of a new covenant that would replace the covenant made with Israel, one that would transcend the Old Testament law. And it is through this new covenant that the promises to Abraham and the promises to David would all come to fulfillment. This new covenant would be one day fulfilled by Jesus Christ, and it would bring God's plan of salvation full circle. These covenants tie together the whole story of Scripture. So this is important because this is really the first time we see God making a covenant. This word appears seven times in verses 8 through 17. So anytime you see a word that's being repeated a bunch, that means it's important, right? God is making a covenant with Noah and with the animals and with every generation after him, promising that there is going to be no more flood coming. This covenant with Noah is unique because there's no obligations for Noah to uphold. There's no ifs, and or buts. God doesn't say, I will never again send a flood as long as you uphold your end of the bargain. This is what theologians call a unilateral covenant. All of the responsibilities are on God's end. Noah can't change it. He can't ruin it. He can't cancel it. God says, I'm going to do this because I say I'm going to do it. And it all depends on him and his faithfulness. There will be no repeat of the flood. Life will go on uninterrupted. The cycle is being broken because God is gracious, because he's making promises, and because he will be faithful to keep those promises. He lays no obligations on Noah. This depends on God and God alone. God is the giver of this covenant. Man is the recipient. God doesn't call it our covenant. He calls it my covenant. My covenant. Not a covenant that we make. He says it's a covenant that I make. It's all on God's end. We see here grace for the world because of God's covenant with Noah. The God who saves us today is a covenantal God. The God who sends us out into the world and gives us a commission is a covenantal God. The God who preserves us and rescues us and keeps us is a covenantal God. And you know what? He has kept this covenant with Noah for thousands of years. It's raining today, but none of us are worried about a global flood. God's been keeping this promise ever since that day. He has not forgotten When he hangs up his rainbow in the sky, he says, I will remember my covenant. Just as God remembered Noah in the flood and rescued him, he remembers his covenant today. You and I are alive because of this covenant. There's been plenty of wickedness, plenty of violence, plenty of corruption that could have justified another flood, but God says, I'm not going to do that again. We are benefits of this grace. We live under this gracious promise. So we see here so much grace from God. We see great blessing on Noah But how does man steward this blessing of life in a new world? Well, pretty quickly as we keep reading, we find a story that's probably not in most of the coloring books. And we find man going from the mountaintop, literally, to being in a pretty low place. As we've seen throughout Genesis to this point, there's this this dual theme, this contrast back and forth of God's grace and man's failure. God's blessing and man's sin. We see this in verses 18 through 28, a sad story. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Ham was the father of Canaan. Hang on to that detail for a minute. It's going to be important momentarily. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil. So he's getting down to work. He's farming. And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, there's that detail again, he saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Are you seeing the cycle here? God's blessing, God's provision, God gives man a responsibility and then man screws it up. Just like God gave them the garden, told them not to eat of the tree, blessed them, they sin, and that sin brings cursing. Once again, we see that this newly washed world, we see this blessed remnant who's been saved, given this commission to multiply and fill the earth, and then we find sin. And we find that that sin brings cursing once again. It's like, man, we've seen this episode before, haven't we? It's playing itself out again. The rest of chapter 9 that we find here is sad. It's just sad. Noah and his family, they stumble and they fall. We see, first of all, the foolishness of Noah in verses 20 through 21. He gets drunk and embarrasses himself, makes a fool of himself. You know, Scripture is pretty honest when it tells us about the heroes of the faith. I mean, Hebrews 11 says Noah was a man of faith, which is true, but he had his issues as well. We see that he is no perfect Savior. Although he's a righteous man, his righteousness was not spotless. Many of the Bible's heroes have feet of clay. Abraham, as we'll see, had plenty of mistakes. Moses made a critical error that kept him from going into the promised land. David, the man after God's own heart, sins with Bathsheba. None of these heroes can be fully followed as a perfect example. Only Christ can. Noah is not one to be worshipped. You know, but Noah's behavior is neither excused nor condemned here. It just tells us what happened. Because what happens next is actually the main failure. I mean, Noah's foolishness, we can mourn that, but what happens next is really the critical error. We see the sin of Ham in verses 22 through 24. You know, Adam and Eve, after their failure, remember they ate. What happened after they ate the fruit? Their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. And we've talked about this, that in in Scripture, it's different than our society today. We tend to think of nakedness as having only sensual overtones. But in Scripture, to be naked and to have that nakedness exposed means humiliation and shame and disgrace. Um, You see stories in the Bible later of of messengers who were sent to deliver a message to an enemy. That enemy shaved off their beards and cut off their coats at the waist and sent them back with their nakedness exposed to humiliate them. And, And we see here that this nakedness, that, you know, Adam and Eve were very aware of their shame. 
We see here that following sin, there is once again nakedness. And what is shameful, instead of being covered like Adam and Eve did, they had the right impulse. Get some fig leaves and sew it together. We see that Ham looks upon his father's nakedness. There's a sense of scorn. He mockingly tells his brothers. He despises and dishonors his father. He doesn't respect his privacy. He doesn't respect his dignity. The one through whom the whole human race had been saved, Noah. I mean, if Noah didn't walk with God, if Noah didn't believe God's word and obey God's word, they would all be dead. And what kind of gratitude does Ham show? He dishonors his father. He ridiculed the one upon whom God had shown favor. It's a violation of his dad's privacy, honor, and dignity. Like a modern hacker who leaks out some celebrity's incriminating photos, Ham makes a spectacle of his father's foolish nakedness, his drunken stupor. He exposes what is shameful and tells his brothers. They, on the other hand, do what Ham should have done. We see that Shem and Japheth, they respectfully, they cover their dad up, and they don't do what their brother did and mockingly, leeringly look in on their father's foolishness. And because of that, because of Ham's sin, it results in cursing, in cursing. When Noah wakes up and he realizes everything that's happened, he says, verse 25, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Two times already, Moses has reminded us that Canaan is the son of Ham. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now we see in this curse that Canaan is the one who gets the brunt end of this curse. Canaan, the youngest son of Ham, will bear the perpetual dishonor of Ham, who, who is the youngest son of Noah. He's to be subject to his brothers. A servant of servants, it says, he shall be. Now, why is that so important? Well, we see here the bad results of sin, but remember who's reading the book of Genesis. Remember who Moses is writing to. The children of Israel have just left Egypt, remember? They're entering into the wilderness. And you know where they're headed? They're headed to the promised land. Guess who lives in the promised land? It's the Canaanites. It's the descendants of Ham, the descendants of Canaan, the ones who are cursed, the ones who are destined to be subjugated to those who bear the blessing. Shem would eventually be the father, you know, through several generations, of Abraham. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, who is renamed Israel, who's the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. As Israel goes into the land of Canaan, they have a right to displace this cursed people group. This is why we need to read Genesis to understand the book of Joshua. Going to Jericho, going to Ai, driving out all of these inhabitants, you might read Joshua by itself and say, man, that doesn't sound fair. But we see here that this is what is destined to happen. It's been prophesied all the way back here in Genesis chapter 9. Canaan is to be subject to his brothers. This gives precedent for the, con the conquest that will come later. But even in the midst of this cursing, we see that the blessing of God's promise is not lost. He says, cursed be Canaan, but I love verse 26. He also said, it's not only cursing. It's not only cursing. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, that's blessing, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. We see here that there is blessing that is going to be continued to Shem and that Japheth is even going to benefit from this blessing on Shem. 
We see that the whole world one day will benefit because of the blessing that is given to Abraham and his descendants Israel. God will tell Abraham that through him and his descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We see here that even though there's cursing, there is blessing and grace continued. What a cycle. God's grace, God's blessing, man's failure, cursing and consequences, but God is faithful to keep the blessing of the promise going. You know, this story reflects in many ways what happened back in chapter 3. We've talked about that a lot this morning. But this story in many ways also tells our story, doesn't it? We've been greatly blessed. We've been shown so much grace. We've been given these blessed responsibilities to represent God in the world and enjoy relationship with him and with each other. But we so often fail, don't we? We, too, keep this cycle going by our sin. So what do we learn from all this? Do we learn not to get drunk in your tent and to honor your parents? Well, yes, those are good things. I'm not going to deny that. But that's not actually the point. There's more than that that we're supposed to see here in this story. We're supposed to learn, first and foremost, something about God. This is supposed to tell us who our God is, that he is the God of the covenant, the one who makes and keeps these covenant promises. The covenant is an expression of divine grace. It depends on divine grace. And it is through God's covenants that his purposes of redemption will be furthered. And it is through these covenants that he will enter into relationship with his people. This is a key theme in scripture that shows us what God is like. And it shows us how he works. shows us what he is at work doing. You know, some of you this morning, you know what it feels like. You, you know what it's like to feel the heartache and the disappointment that comes from a broken promise. Perhaps from a parent. Perhaps from a spouse. Perhaps from a friend. Perhaps an employer who made promises that he didn't follow through on. You felt the sting of betrayal. Perhaps you felt the shame of feeling abandoned. Somebody didn't uphold their end of the deal. You've been rejected. But hear me loud and clear this morning that God is not like that. He is not like that. God keeps his word. He is faithful to his covenant promises. Look outside. See the world that has been perhaps flooded locally, but never destroyed like it was in the first flood. Look at the rainbow and see that for over 4,000 years, God has kept this promise. Our God is faithful. And upon this solid rock, like we sang this morning, we can stand. We know who our God is and what he's like. You can hang all your hopes on this, that God will never fail. He will fulfill his promises to you. This is who he is. This is what he is like. This is what we learn from this story. And this should call us to place our faith and trust in him, that he's good for it. He'll follow through. He'll keep his promises. Not only do we learn something about God, but we learn also something about salvation. And this is important. Get this. Covenant is necessary. It's necessary. Think about this. If God doesn't make this covenant with Noah, the world gets flooded again. If God doesn't make a covenant with Abraham, there's no blessing for the families of all the earth. If God doesn't make a covenant with David, we never get a righteous king who brings justice and peace to the world. If God doesn't send Jesus to fulfill the promises of the new covenant, you and I don't get a new heart. We don't get the forgiveness of sins, and we don't get a relationship with God. 
covenant is necessary. The principle here is that man's continual failure can only be overcome by the gracious intervention of God, the God who makes covenants. Noah didn't ask God to make this covenant, but he needed it. He needed it. You and I, apart from the grace of God, would never approach him and ask for salvation, but God knew we needed it. So he sent his son Jesus to come here and die on the cross and rise again to bring the blessings of the new covenant to us so that your sins and my sins can be forgiven. God initiates, God provides through the covenant. And apart from this gracious intervention, we have no salvation. Covenant is necessary. When when Jesus comes to earth, he tells his disciples at the Last Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And for Jewish men like these disciples who had grown up steeped in the Old Testament, when Jesus said that word covenant, a million bells and whistles would have gone off. God is keeping his promise to bring salvation through Jesus. His death is the sacrifice that brings these covenant promises of salvation to bear. If Jesus doesn't come and die and rise again, you and I have no hope. But Jesus did come. He's done it. It is finished. All that remains for us is to be recipients of these blessings, to open our hands in faith, to turn our hearts to God in repentance and receive what only God can do for us. We can't save ourselves. We can't bring these covenant promises to bear. Only God can do it, and he has in the person of Christ. So we turn from sin to Christ and we trust in his grace. We receive his promises and we believe that he will be faithful. He's the God of the covenant. We need to know these things about God and we need to know these things about salvation if we're going to understand the Bible. We need to know these things about God. We need to know these things about salvation if we're going to fend off the wrong ideas about salvation. The people who tell you that you have the power to bring about salvation in your life, if you're just a good enough person, if you do enough good things, if you get baptized in the right church or if you give money, you can't fix it. That's what we learn here. It takes the grace of God to save sinners like you and me. So we need to understand these themes. And we need to understand this about God and about salvation if we are to enjoy the peace and the security that comes from resting in these truths. I love what we sang this morning. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's a safe and secure place to be. In the middle of the storm, we have a shelter. It's Jesus Christ, who is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. What peace and comfort we have this morning in knowing that. We need to know these things. They are precious. This isn't just information. This is the heartbeat of our faith to know that this is what our God is like and this is what he has done for us. Aren't you glad we worship a God who saves and doesn't just judge? Aren't you glad we worship a God who sent his son to absorb the flood of wrath, to hang on the cross under the deluge of judgment so that there's none left for us? Aren't you glad we serve a God we can trust, a God who keeps his promises? I am. It's our only hope. If you go out of here this morning trusting in your own efforts to do enough good things for God to not judge you, we're so up and down. You can't do it. But God saves. He makes and keeps covenants so that we 
might be rescued and saved so that we might fulfill his ultimate purpose for us, enjoying a relationship with him for his glory and our good. Let's worship him this morning for his grace in spite of our failure. God, as we look into the scriptures, we catch a glimpse of who you are. You are just and holy. You judge sin. But you are also so gracious to preserve and to bless and to provide and to offer us true salvation that depends not on our faithfulness, but depends on yours. And you are faithful. You never change. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith and our trust this morning, especially for those who are facing trials, who are discouraged and suffering. I pray that they would rest in your promises today, knowing that you're faithful. And Lord, for those who may not know you today, who aren't standing on the rock that is Jesus Christ, those who might be trying in their own efforts to fix their own problem of sin, I pray that today they would realize that it's only through being recipients of grace, through faith, that we can be saved. I pray that they would come to Jesus this morning and place their confidence in him. We praise you, Lord, for how greatly you love us. We ask that you would help us to love you more. Amen.